0: Nine minutes it is before 8 p.m. You're tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the mighty Metro. And it's our wrap of the top business stories where we take a look at the latest in the world of money and power. And I'm joined by Portfolio Manager and Analyst at APSA Asset Management, Roy Motoni, to take a look at the big stories in the world of business. Roy, good evening to you and welcome.
1: Thank you. Good evening to you as well.
0: Roy, let's maybe start off here with a very sad story coming out of Sapaku Holdings. Uh, the CEO there uh, passing on over the... Uh, uh, last while, and we saw Sen's announcement coming through today. Peter Fourier, Uh he's been certainly integral, I guess, to uh, the development and growth of uh, Sepaku as we currently know it.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a tragedy. I, I knew Peter personally. Um, I used to cover cement when when I, was, when I worked on the south side for Deutsche Bank. And, mm. and, and he, he started um, Sepaku Cement. He actually went into the negotiation that allowed the Sepaku guys to partner with dangote and challenge um, the, the the that how do you call it monopoly, the duopoly of cement, where you had not had a new player come into the market for a hell of a long time. Mm. and Sepaku became a big player, revolutionized the market. he knew his work, he knew his stuff, he knew his cement. um you'll be a massive loss, not just to. The company, but
0: the country as a whole. Mm, mm. And, and maybe let's talk about, I guess, uh, his uh, role in, um, you know, probably one of the biggest cement stories on the continent, which is uh, the investment by Dangote Cement um, into Sapaco uh, uh, Holdings and uh, effectively, I guess, you know, uh, um, presenting a very formidable player um, as a competitor to uh, the old Pretoria Portland cement
1: yeah, it, it never seemed possible for another big player to enter the market. It always seemed like the local players had it nicely tied up mm. and they could charge pretty much anything. Remember, cement prices, was always a complaint that South African cement prices were higher than anywhere else because of this um, old boys club, so to speak. Um, and I think the guys who originally started up Sepaku initially didn't see themselves as a challenger to this status quo. Dangote as well didn't see himself coming in directly. He tried to buy out PPC, but that didn't quite work out. The negotiations didn't quite pan out as they wanted. Um, But Peter was able to speak on both sides. He had great experience. He worked for Blue Circle, which is one of the big global players as well. Um, And and he made this happen. Um, The first investment, the first big cement investment that had happened in the country in a long time, um, a real challenge to the state at school. Um, and and a real change to to how the market um, developed here. Um, Like like I said, I I personally knew him. I learned a lot of cement terminology and cement market experience gained Um. from him. So he'll he'll be missed.
0: Yeah, and he's certainly somebody who, um, I guess, loomed large in the built environment for many years, having worked at Lafarge as well, uh, here at home and in their operations at the head office in France. So uh, certainly, um, you know, no. Um, I guess a slouch in that part of the world and uh, we send our sincere condolences uh, to his family and to the team there at Sapako Holdings. Now let's shift our attention Roy uh, to uh, what played itself out in Parliament um, a very interesting issue here uh, and I guess it's the kind of things we ought to expect uh, for as long as we continue to delay uh, much needed pension reform and uh, I guess even uh, a clear framework around a comprehensive social security system So,
1: So this thing it's It's actually, you have to look at it from a big picture perspective. And I think all the players have taken an angle that is relevant, that is relevant and is probably correct as a standalone.
0: For their own interests?
1: For their own interests. And also, if you think about, yes, let's actually say for their own interests. But I think, look at it from a holistic perspective. For a country to develop, it, it needs access to savings. Mm. Either international savings or local savings. Local savings are most secure because they're generated here and they're kept here. So all of these Asian tigers developed because they had considerable local savings. Now, South Africa, like most of Africa, is low on local savings. I mean, just to give you a couple of numbers, places like Kenya, domestic savings are around 5%. Where their interest rates? They're in the mid-teens. Mid-teens, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe they've come down to about 10% now. South Africa is at 15% um, gross domestic savings. India is at 30%, China 42%, Mexico 20%. Global average is 25%. If you do not have your own savings, you have to borrow from the rest of the world. It means that your interest rates are higher. It means your rate of development will be lower. It's just that simple. And when the rest of the world doesn't want to lend to you, you are unable to invest. You can't put in infrastructure. You can't do all of those good things that we want to be done for us as citizens. So so that's the big picture on the one side. On the other, when I look at what the DA is trying to say, is that people are saying, I'll either be poor now or when I retire. Mm-hmm. So why don't I get my money out now? Now, but here's the problem.
0: But you see, right. Roy- he has maybe an, an additional dimension let me maybe give some context to some of our listeners so so the context of the issue is a members bill and we had spoken about a members bill earlier on in the week for something entirely different but a members bill coming again from the da uh, which suggested that uh, many pension holders should be given the option uh, to at least um, you know use 75% of their pension fund assets Um, as security for a loan now currently in the current system you're allowed to take parts of your pension out if you are going to spend that money on immovable property or to i guess you know uh, a guarantee that immovable property with your pension so that if you default then the bank can come in and you know there's that story but what the da is suggesting here is that 75 percent is what you should be able to take and the treasury is flat out saying no uh, but uh, interestingly, I guess the ANC members of parliament have taken a bit more of a balanced stance here. And, and one would think that that's because there's the reality, Roy, of um, many nurses, uh, you know, teachers, police policewomen um, who have considerable amount of pensions with the GEPF, but many of them don't even have homes. They are renting in backyards and many of them effectively don't have the kind of secure assets in their working life uh, beyond maybe getting a pension at terminal time T.
1: So think about it this way. Um, when you go get a mortgage, your security is the property itself. Yes. The mortgage is long-lived. If you need additional security, it must mean that the, the, that the authority or whoever it is who's advancing this loan considers you a high risk. So mm. getting the pension fund does not reduce your risk. It absolutely doesn't. It just introduces another security. That's one thing. The second thing is... Um, Remember now what happens is you've basically borrowed from the future to the present. Mm. When you get to the end, um, you may end up in a situation like now where property prices have come down and you have another loan. Well, you have a loan, but you don't have, you don't have the income to service that loan.
0: Sure, sure. So,
1: so that's a problem. And then what happens? You go depend on the government for, for a state pension, which is not considerable. And already the government is stretched in terms of paying that state pension. So, so, I think this it's a roundabout way of of saying let's consume now and let the future worry for itself. I think what's more important mm. is look at the root cause. What what problem exactly are you trying to solve? The the problem that you're trying to solve is access to capital at present. The pension fund, let it be when you retire, when you have no ability to earn income. Mm. Right now, if you lost your job, um, you you have the ability to find something, make a plan, get another job. Okay, it's difficult, but I say it's possible. When you've retired, you're at 65, you're not getting another job. Mm. Um, But you see, Roy, I guess... It's quite important important to have that level of...
0: And I think you make a very important point because I do think that there's two sides of... Um, you know, the argument that you're making. On the one hand, there's a group of people who are saying people want to take out some of this money for loans for consumptive purposes, Uh right? Um, And then there's another school of thought that is saying um, if you can justifiably prove alongside immovable property and other, you know, uh, appreciable assets, so Uh assets whose value grows over time, uh, then there's scope for us to think about it. But I still think 75% is a bit... Uh, is a bit too much, and I guess borders on you know, the decimation of value uh, in some cases. But, but I do think that, in principle, you do want to allow people in their working life, I would think, mm-hmm. to at least take out some portion of that and invest it in assets that would appreciate over time.
1: So so think about it this way as well. I, I, I mean, I have nothing against what you're saying, but in reality, this just becomes a shortcut of of, um, of, of of accessing those savings mm. because if you think about what, the, what what the DA is saying in this members bill is they're saying there's no restriction as to youth. Right now you have lots of people who resign from jobs. maybe they've got another job they're going to. So what they do is rather than going putting the pension into a preservation, they instead cash it out, pay the tax, and buy a car or invest in a house and all of that. and yeah. from the pension perspective, they start again. Now, each time that capital goes and you pay that tax, hey, the costs,
0: Yeah,
1: th- there's a huge cost mm. associated. And even now, what this could do is, you and I sitting where we are, we could say, you know what, I've got my job. Um, I need to do a little deal on the side. Do I want to upgrade my house or what? Mm. Let, me, let me mortgage my pension. Why not? If the, if the possibility comes, then in all likelihood, you do it. So first, there's the national problem of savings. Second, from a personal perspective, you're exposing yourself later on to the future. Uh. And third, you're just encouraging consumption at present and not creating a savings mindset. Yeah.
0: And it's significant leakages from a savings system that, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, is probably not uh, a one that um, you know leaves a lot to be desired. But that being said, Roy, yes. um, I mean, w- when you look at this, I- I'm quite interested and and maybe put on your political cap here for a second, mm-hmm. um, or your political economy analysis cap for a second. Yes. Uh, the motivations of the democratic alliance in, you know, pushing forward a members bill of this kind, um mm-hmm. uh, and I, I hate to say this, but also the timing of it.
1: I, I think. You see, they've always come across, and again, I'm going to be as apolitical as I can as I can be because people better qualify than I do. Sure, sure, place. sure. They, they, they've positioned themselves as the party of administration, that when we run something, it runs well and efficient, but they've always come across as disconnected from the poor. Mm. That would that be a broad thing. I think in their mind, this is one way of trying to show people, we see your pain, we see your hurt, we're trying to also connect with you and, 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 and help you get a bit of capital so that you can participate in the economy like everybody else. So so it to me, it fits in with, with what they're saying. But it just goes, for me, when I look at it, whichever way it is, it comes from a politician. The politician is talking about jam today. Um, forget about the future. Um, let's sort of today first. The future will come when it comes. It's not long-term thinking mm, mm.
0: And I guess, you know, that. that's what happens, um, you know, Roy, if you don't sort out a multi-decade process of getting a very clear framework. Uh, because I think the one message that has come from the government and in particular the National Treasury over the last while has been the story of preservation. So even if you're moving between different jobs or if, uh, you know, you, you're at a point where you're reaching the end of your working life, you know, don't take that massive lump sum out uh, because I guess that has a ripple impact also on, you know, the state welfare system, because many Absolutely. of the people who might not have these pensions will effectively fall back on the state pensions. And um, uh, and all of this happening at a time where there's all manner of questions around the fiscal resources. But, but let's leave that one for a second and talking about fiscal resources. Uh, earlier on this week, Roy, we were talking... Uh, to many of our colleagues in the labor movement and uh, beyond it around the public sector wage bill. And that was just for national and provincial government workers. Now, we know there's a different bargaining framework for local government uh, with the local government association and some of the trade unions at a municipal level uh, bargaining. And it seems this one too might be set for a collision course.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, the the reality is... um, over the past 10-15 years, all public sector, um, all p- public sector civil servants, whether to, at, at whichever level, have generally got higher than inflation increases. Okay, we can blame that on political carrying, the fact that the unions are members of the of the national of the ruling coalition, or or lack of skills. You can blame it on whatever. At the end of the day, they've been earning more than inflation increases, Mm. and the government has been very reticent to take them on, and now it's gotten to a point where the proportion, the total government wage bill as a proportion of GDP is well out of kilter with anything else and any of our competitor nations, which significantly impacts on our competitiveness. That's the bottom line. Now, that is from the perspective of the nation and, and potentially the government. But if I was a civil servant, if I was in the union seeing declining union membership, reduced recruitment into the, into, into the public sector, to protect myself and my job, I'm going to say we are going to push for a big deal so that I can get backing, keep my membership on, and, and see if I can deliver something. So, so the government's in a tough place. They know what the right thing to do is here. The right thing for the country is manages wage bill in such a way that either productivity rises or the wage bill is managed down in real terms, in real terms over the next few years. Mm. But from the union's perspective, they know if, if, we, if we think this way, our membership will basically say we're not here for them, we'll be voted out of office. Some other guy will come with a more radical thing. And as we've seen historically, the government will buckle at some stage to some level. So that's the problem. There is no hard red line. The minister is really trying and he has really said it. And the minister of finance has been very blunt. But these guys figure, there's a deal to be made here.
0: And I guess Um, there's big question marks, you know, uh, I was saying to somebody on Monday that, you know, you can easily define what uh, private sector productivity is if you're able to, I guess, divvy up what a workflow looks like. It's something entirely different uh, when you get to the public service because there's a big question mark around attribution. I mean, if I'm a municipal worker uh, and I haven't been supplied with the tools of the trade, as many in many dysfunctional municipalities uh, are facing, Uh, How then do you measure my productivity?
1: And also, just remember that in talking about public sector workers, we're putting together a whole bunch of very disparate people. Yes, yes. First, you've got teachers who we absolutely need, who need to be well educated, who need to be well motivated. We've got doctors, healthcare workers who are absolutely essential right now, who are on the front line. Mm. Then we've got the guys you and I meet in. When we, when we seek government services who are more administrative and all of that, and the guys at the municipalities and guys who are far-flung. So when we put all of these guys in a pot, the, the picture comes out to the average person that no, none of these guys do anything useful. But in reality, they are. That's if, true, you underpay the, if you underpay the doctors, they emigrate or mm. they go work somewhere else. If you underpay the teachers, they don't show up half the time. Huh. So so, so that's, that, that is the complexity of this whole thing. And sure. I think this is the hot potato that the minister needs to deal with. No, definitely. But in reality, you, you're, you're dealing in a competitive economy. There are some people who need to be paid more. And then there are others who you need less of, who you need significantly greater levels of productivity. Roy, before I let
0: you go, uh, what do you make of that inflation number? Um, and I guess the big story of the fuel price, but also what we're seeing... Uh, as a rise in uh, meat and dairy prices as well, uh, certainly saying something about what's happening uh, not just in the oil price but also in key product markets.
1: Yeah, so so remember, I, I guess the biggest thing for us is that because we're a low-income nation, food prices are a significant proportion of our income basket. So we spend more, a greater proportion on average of our income on food. So when food inflation rises this way, it's going to be a problem. Now, the thing about it is, most likely, the reason why food prices have risen is global soft commodity prices which have been rising. Where they've been rising is you had um, you had droughts, you had the supply chain shocks, greater demand in china um and to other places which didn't have the harvest they expected. So mm. you see all of that rising now. Is it, is it permanent? Is it something that needs to be dealt with? In all likelihood, no. We've seen soft commodity prices beginning to moderate. And the rand at current levels means as we get through this hump, most likely that inflation print will come down. But the concern here is that that inflation didn't come from excess demand. So we shouldn't think that the sub needs to raise, rather than, put, if the sub raises rates, to counter this inflation. It really doesn't help anyone. This is an external shock. I think we've been nicely shielded by, by the strong land and the fact that we can see that the next coming few months, this sure. will probably um, come off. And demand isn't growing that. Extent. Yeah, yeah. So they need to raise interest rates should not arise. And but they've also theory. said,
0: I mean, Roy, that uh, they've anchored their own inflationary expectations around that midpoint of that 3 to 6% range, 4.4, 4.5, 4.6, somewhere there. So, uh, probably not a uh, reason to panic, but also speaks volumes about the base from which many of these prices are emerging from. Roy? Yeah.
1: That's just yeah. Um, and as the base emerges, we'll get we'll normalize and things mm. should come back to
0: both. Sure. Roy, we'll have to leave it there. As always a pleasure catching up with you, my brother. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks. Have a good evening.
0: Roy Motoni is a portfolio manager and analyst at APSA Asset Management, helping us with our wrap of the top business stories.